readers. I, this morning at the last moment, I actually cut my entire introduction out of my manuscript, which meant that I had to rewrite the ending of the sermon because the introduction should be encapsulated at the end, right? And so I just want to take a moment to uh, acknowledge that um, I'm thankful to be here this morning. I hope that you're thankful to be here this morning. It is Palm Sunday, as Brent was talking about, and um, we decided that we would continue to just go through our sermon series in Jonah and not uh, stop to talk about the triumphal entry um, that everybody so frequently preaches in uh, the Western church in America on this day. And the reason that we did that is because we have to be aware of the reality that we should be celebrating the triumphal entry of Christ every single day. We should be celebrating his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation and his intercession and mediation for us every single day. We shouldn't need a date on the calendar to come around so that we might be reminded of what it was that Christ did. We should be reminded every day and in all things. And so the calendar doesn't have to drive or dictate what we do here because we're not in submission to church tradition here. We're in submission to the Word of God and the will of God as we are led along by the Spirit of God. And so if God wants us to preach through the book of Jonah on Palm Sunday, then that's what we're going to do. <laughs> and His Spirit is going to speak loud and clear regardless of the topic because the sermon is going to be grounded in His Word. And His Word from Genesis to Revelation is inspired. So whatever we look at, we're going to stand before the mirror and we're going to come to understand that we need Him every day. We're thankful that His mercies are new every morning and that we can do nothing apart from the Spirit of God. Amen? That's what we believe in this church. And so we don't have to fight with what's going on out there. We actually come here we get strengthened so that we can evangelize the issues that are unfolding out there. Because they're not the enemy. They're lost as we were once lost. Which means they're the mission field. And we can't hate them and we can't let fear dictate how we interact with them. We don't have a spirit of fear. We've been given a spirit of power and self-control. We've been given an intellect. We've been given time to study. In this day and age, we have access to more resources than any other age in the church ever could have dreamed of having access to. And so we are equipped to deal with what is going on out there now ever more than before. And so if we stand timid and fearful... It's our self-disqualification. It's not God's view of us. He has said, I have saved you, I have redeemed you, and I have equipped you for the mission. Now get to work. <laughs> and that message couldn't be on a louder or clearer display than in the book of Jonah. So why don't we just pray, and then we'll dig into our study for this morning. Father, thank you for what it is that you're doing 
You haven't lost control. You're seated on the throne. You're reigning and ruling. Nothing catches you by surprise. And you have placed your bride, the church, here to do your work. The authority that was given to you has been granted to us by the Spirit that lives in us. And so this morning as we study your word, Father, I pray that you would remind us that we are well equipped for the task at hand and that we would do well not to look back as we persevere and run the race that you have set before us. Father, work in us and through us. Change us and transform us so that we leave here today different than we walk through the door. That's the goal, and only you have the authority to do that, Lord. So we submit our hearts and our minds to you, and we ask that you would have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've been going through the book of Jonah, and over the last two weeks, we did a detour We talked about typology, and then we tackled the topic of conditional prophecy versus absolute prophecy. So now we are back in the book of Jonah, picking up right where we left off in chapter 3. Today we'll be tackling verses 1 through 3. I'll put the text on the screen, or our graphics person will put the text on the screen. Turn there in your Bibles if you've got it. If you don't have a Bible, does anybody in the house need a Bible? We'll give you one today. Raise your hand. Everybody's got a Bible? Everybody's got a phone, so everybody should have a Bible, right? Okay, Jonah chapter 3. I'll be reading from the ESV. Our author begins in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. We open up the book of Jonah. We turn to chapter 3. We look at verse 1, and we are immediately reintroduced to the wonderful reality that Yahweh is the God of second chances. And everybody in the room said, hallelujah. hallelujah. Amen, right? I need a second chance. Anybody feeling that today? Anybody wake up and already make a mistake today and go, man, I already blew it. I need another go at this. Am I alone? <laughs> He's the God of second chances. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I mean, think about the prophet Jonah who was rebellious in heart, who heard the word of the Lord and ran in chapter 1. Think about the prophet Jonah in chapter 2 who writes a mockery of a prayer as he makes it all about himself. I mean my, over and over and over. And yet the grace and the mercy of God not only pursues him, but finds him right where he's at and gives deliverance and salvation to the rebellious individual. And everyone in the house said, hallelujah, because that's me. We've got more in common with Jonah than we would like to admit but we're going to keep it 100 this morning. 
everybody in here has got a lot in common with the prophet Jonah. Now, I don't know about you guys, but it's my opinion that at this point in the text, Jonah would have been in a state of shock. I mean, A, he's alive. <laughs> B, he's got both feet on dry land in the land of the living. And C, he's received a second opportunity to submit to the word of the Lord. Jonah is in a state of shock. The mission to Nineveh can begin once again. And it's all because of Yahweh, the God of all grace. And it's all because he decided that he would call out to the rebellious prophet for a second time. We could just park in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, and we could just meditate on the severe mercy of God. You could just live in this verse. Man, it's so good to know that God is in hot pursuit of me, and when I make mistakes and when I drop the ball, he's not going to let me go. Is that our reflection toward one another? Or is it easy? Because I know it's easy for me to just be like, you did what to me? You said what to me? Come on. I heard you said what? Say it to my face. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's right. That's, that's, that's the question right there. Do we actually love one another the way that Christ loved the church? Because he got up off the throne. He didn't have to. He doesn't need us. But he wanted us. He desired to be in right relationship with us. And so he made a way for that to happen. Do we pursue one another that way, saints? It's hard. It's really, really hard. Especially when fallible human beings make it more difficult than it has to be. And it's at that moment when I'm confronted with the reality, do I want to extend the same grace and the same mercy that God has given me? And a lot of the times, the answer is no. No, I don't want to do it. Not on? Check one. Is it not on? Can you hear it? Okay. Is it registering on the soundboard? No? Yeah, maybe the battery did die. <laughs> I don't know. Check, check one. Is it on? No, no, it's on. It's on. It's good. All right. You capturing the audio with one of the cameras? Is it on? All right. I'm just trying to make it, make it right for everybody. All right. Now it's on? It's on. Okay, now we're on. All right, we're on. Okay, so we're talking about extending the same grace and mercy to others that we have received from God. Jonah had experienced the grace and mercy of God. Jonah was a recipient of God's patience. Now when we stop and we pause and we think about that, like I said, we could live in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. 
Just like I said we could live in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, where the word of the Lord came to the prophet for the first time. Because that revealed that God, as he is in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, is always in pursuit of his most prized creation. Now when we look at this slide, can we put the text back up there? No, no, go. Yeah, when we look at this slide, is it just me? Or does anyone else feel like they're experiencing deja vu? That's a legit question. I look at this and I'm like, I'm experiencing deja vu. Let's go to the next slide. As you can see, nope, go to the side-by-side slide, slide 106. There you go. All right. As you can see, Jonah chapter 3 verse 1 through 2, is nearly a mirror image of Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, with some slight variations, and I've done my best to highlight each of the variations that exist in the English translation so that we can see it. Wow. Did the author not have anything new to say? (laughs) Or is he being intentional here? Uriel Simons writes that the close parallel between these scenes indicates a new beginning. A new beginning. So, one could argue that through a series of spectacular events, the plot has, in essence, returned to its starting point. Now, it's safe to say we don't know how much time has passed, if any, from the close of chapter 2 where the big fish spit Jonah out onto the dry land to the opening of chapter 3 where the word of the Lord comes to Jonah for the second time. We don't know how much time has passed between those events, if any. The author's not clear on that. But what we do know is that Jonah's upcoming trip from Joppa to Nineveh would have been somewhere between 500 and 600 miles depending on the route that he was going to take. Considering the different modes of transportation available in the ancient Near East, this would be no easy trek. You got camels, you got donkeys, and you got your tan Cadillacs. That's what we used to call them in the army, right? How am I getting there? (laughs) 500 to 600 miles. It's not an easy trek. Now, It's here that we need to pause and take a good hard look at the first four words in verse 2. As modern students of the text, we need to understand that God was directing his prophet to engage one of the largest cities in the midst of the largest known empires to date. And Israel and the Assyrian nation was not friendly with one another. Hate existed between these nations. Wars were waged between these nations because Assyria was attempting to conquer the known world at this point in time. Are we aware that the Assyrian Empire was famous for their brutality? Let's look at some of the reliefs. This is a relief that has been taken from what is modern Mosul. Modern Mosul stands where ancient Assyria 
stood. And when you look at this relief, you got to ask yourself, what am I seeing here? Well, you're seeing the victor, the Assyrian soldier, on the battlefield. And as war is being waged, he's decapitating the head of the soldier from the other army that has fallen. This was standard practice on the battlefield for the ancient Assyrian warriors. And you might be asking yourself, well, why would they cut the heads off of soldiers that had already fallen and were laying dead on the battlefield? Well, that's what this next relief is for. They had a game that they would play. You see that? What does it look like they're doing with the heads? They're throwing them back and forth to one another. You know why they're doing this? Because in the ancient Near East, the families of these fallen soldiers would be watching from the wall as the battle waged on and on. And so they would be watching their fallen beloved father, son, and grandson being tarnished on the battlefield. And when they were done celebrating by playing with the heads that they had cut off of the fallen soldiers, making a mockery of their bodies on the battlefield, let's go to the next slide. They would take large spikes and they would stick these heads on the ends of the spikes and they would drive them into the ground so that the women and the children who knew and loved these men who had fallen on the battlefield would have to watch their faces decompose in the heat of the sun. This is intense stuff. Let's go to the next slide. If you were unlucky and you didn't fall on the battlefield... They would take you while you were living and they would impale you on a large spike and they would do this outside the city walls of the, of, the, of the nations that they had just conquered. And then as they traveled down the road, they'd stick another one on and put a live body on it and it would slowly fall and fall and fall so that the people that were coming behind the Assyrian army who were traveling down the road would know, <laughs> it's time to turn around and go home. Let's go to the next slide. You guys know what's going on right here? Can you see that? There's two Assyrian soldiers on each of the reliefs. These are live victims, and for fun, they're skinning them seeing how long it takes the individual to die. And they're doing this side by side. You, know, you recognize who's watching here? The children are being forced to watch. Exactly, desensitize. If there are Syrian children, this is your future and this is what you'll pride yourself on. If there are the children of the people who are being conquered, then it just leaves trauma so that you know never to contravene or try to usurp the nation once they move on. Pay your taxes and all will be fine. Let's go to the next slide. If you are unlucky 
and you don't fall on the battlefield, and you're not impaled on a spike, and they take you into captivity, you know what he's doing right here? He's grinding the bones of his loved ones, which means that the Assyrian army would take wives and children into captivity with the spoils, and then they would skin and dismember in front of the male, and then they would cause the male to by hand grind down the bones of his wife and his children. This is a Babylonian man who is being forced to do that in the relief. Death would be better than this. Let's go to the next slide. If you think that I'm exaggerating or these are photoshopped or these aren't real, these are the reliefs. Look at the size of these reliefs in comparison to the humans who are looking at them. This is on display in the British Museum. Okay, let's go to the next slide. So you can see that there are multiple accounts and photos of people who tour the museum and get to see these wonderful artifacts in person. Let's go to the next one. You've even got a man here who's got the headphones on. Anybody ever been to a museum taking a tour with the audio thing? And it, as you walk through ex exhibit to exhibit, they explain in graphic detail what's happening. Yeah, that's what's going on right here. And you can see on this relief that all of the things that we just looked at, or the majority of them, <laughs> are somewhere on the wall. So this is not an exaggeration. This is the kind of stuff that the Assyrians were famous for. It's what they wanted to be remembered for. How do we know it's what they wanted to be remembered for? Well, as we've just seen, the kings and the rulers of Assyria took great pride in recording the details so that they might relive the battles as they walked the halls of their palaces. And imagine if you were the puppet king of the nation that they had just conquered and they invited you to come pay tribute and they had you walk the halls with them, you too would relive the battles that you may have lived through or that your father or your grandfather would have died in. Rebringing the, tra the trauma right to the forefront time and time again. Oh, and did I mention that Jonah was from the small town of Gethhefer? <laughs> His city's so small, he has to get a special mention on the map because his city's not even identified on the map. <laughs> Try to imagine being a small town prophet from Podunk Gethhefer who for the first time in his life is traveling 500 plus miles through the desert to deliver a word of prophecy to the arch enemy of Israel and the known world. And as he crests the top of a hill, this is what he sees in the distance. And as he gets closer and closer, things start to come into focus. And the closer he gets, the smaller he begins to feel. Until finally, he finds himself standing at one of the 15 different gates of the city. Let's go to the next slide. 750 hectares. What is a hectare? Well, in layman's terms, it's a term of measurement 
that is just shy of 2.5 acres. So if Nineveh is approximately 750 hectares according to what archaeology has uncovered, then Nineveh is approximately 1,850 acres. 15 gates on this city. Jonas thought to have traveled through one of these gates because he's coming from what would be southeast and he's traveling northwest and he would come through the western gates. So he arrives at this city that's massive. Like nothing he's ever seen before. And what does he do? He's like, oh, there's not just one gate to the city. I've got options for the first time in my life. And as he begins to talk to the locals, they start to remind him and describe to him how each of the gates is named for one of their deities because they are a pantheistic nation who serves a multiplicity of gods. Upon entering the city, one would encounter wide streets with some stone pavings. Gardens, parks, game parks, canals, palaces, temples, and houses. This must have been a breathtaking experience. And the combination and grandeur of these features certainly distinguished Nineveh from almost every other ancient city. Let's go to the next slide. If you're trying to look at that graph that was over here and you want a little, big, a little bit bigger, this is what it looks like. And they, they, they believe that Jonah went through one of these two gates. Here's the other gates, and you can see the names of the false gods who are they're named after. Now this picture right here on this side of the screen is a modern picture taken from a street side view of the gate that Jonah would have walked through. So imagine, if it's this large in our time, what do you think he thought in his day? Notice how the ground has continued to rise up and bury the gate, the, the, the wall of the city. And it's a shame because ISIS traveled through this part of the land and destroyed so much of what had been beautifully preserved after we pulled out of that country. So, it's no doubt that Jonah would have been out of his element. 100%. No question in my mind. Now for context, Dr. Richter notes that the capital city of Jerusalem was only 30 acres. So think about that. Size difference. It's like someone from Bethel flying into Los Angeles. Can you imagine how daunted they would be by the shifting culture, the size of the buildings, the sounds of the streets? Kind of comes to life when you see it and you read it. Saints, are we beginning to grasp the reality? The prophet of Israel was sent into the literal lion's den. I don't care who you are. 
As soon as you become aware of the historical details, it doesn't take long for us to realize that fear absolutely played a role in the prophet's initial response to rebel. Nobody in this room is signing up for the mission that Jonah has been enlisted by God to do. (laughs) And yet so often, we try to be like, don't be like Jonah, because I don't have anything in common with Jonah either, and neither do you, because we're better than Jonah. It's like, no. (laughs) The author wants us to know and understand that to Yahweh... Jonah's fear did not matter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. My heart would have sank. Just being honest. What would you say if I told you that the ESV did a bad job of translating the close of verse 2? A lot of people would immediately turn it off. Because there are ESV onlyists as bad as there are King James onlyists. There are textual translation snobs all throughout the church, and their snobbery exists because they don't actually understand how translation works. I love the ESV, but it gets this wrong. Now, I'm not going to bore everyone with the details of the Hebrew grammar and syntax, but here's what we need to know. If we look back at chapter 1, verse 2, we will see that God ordered Jonah to cry out against Nineveh. It's there in chapter 1, verse 2, that we will see the Hebrew word, al. I've got it up in the corner over here. You can go and you can get an interlinear. A, a reverse interlinear will be easier for you to read. And you can look at the Hebrew language as each term is said above each English word. However, in chapter 3, verse 2, God commands Jonah to cry out to Nineveh. In chapter 3, verse 2, we, he, we see the Hebrew word El. We've got on the slide on this side. Now notice that the ESV decided to translate them as one and the same. Old Testament scholar Kevin Youngblood notes that the alteration changes the nuance of the command from condemn them to proclaim to them, which means that both the the NIV and the NASB got it right where the ESV missed it. you got to ask yourself, does this have an impact on how I read and understand the Bible. And I would argue that it does have an impact. (laughs) We should be asking the question, what does this mean? And I'm going to tell you there's two possible answers. The alteration may serve as a foreshadowing of the mercy that Yahweh will show to Nineveh. Anybody read the whole story? Anybody knows that God will relent? Everybody understands that God will change His mind, He will change His words, and He will change His actions towards Nineveh because they responded positively to the prophet. So that's one option. It serves as a foreshadowing to the mercy that Yahweh will show to Nineveh. 
Second option, it shifts the emphasis from the reason because of their wickedness and it has come up before me to Yahweh's authority over both the messenger and the message. You're going to proclaim what I'm going to tell you. God is making sure that His authority is established. Ultimately, if we understand this correctly, then the close of verse 2 highlights the reality that Yahweh does not give Jonah a free hand to craft his message. Jonah will speak the word of the Lord. He will proclaim to Nineveh the message that Yahweh is about to speak to him. This raises the question for some of us in the room. Did Jonah get the word then? Or did Jonah have to be loyal and obedient and get to Nineveh so that God would give him the word to speak? I'll let you think about that one. I find value in this. And I find the value to be twofold. First, it requires Jonah to fully rely on God for the words which he will speak. I wonder if it's passages like this that informed the master's backdrop. That whether you stand before kings or men, when you need the words, my spirit's going to give them to you. I wonder if this informed the backdrop of Second Peter chapter 1. No word of prophecy has ever been spoken by man's own will, but he was carried along by the Spirit. You start to read things like this, and you start to go, oh, there's no original thought in the New Testament because everything that's written in the New Testament is grounded on what's been written in the Old Testament. There's no need to divide them. We don't have a different God in the Old Testament. He's one and the same, and it's His Word from Genesis to Revelation. So first, it requires Jonah to rely fully on, God's, on God for the words which he'll speak. And second, it functions as a subtle word of comfort to the prophet. It's like God is reassuring his prophet that he will not only provide the message, but he'll also protect his messenger. We do understand that Jonah needs to be alive if he's going to proclaim this word that the Lord has given him, right? You kind of need to be breathing if you're going to be effective and efficient in proclaiming the word of God. So it functions as a form of comfort as he faces off with the people of Nineveh. This is a reality that, in my opinion, becomes absolutely clear in the next verse. Can you guys read this next verse? It becomes clear to me because if the city requires three days' journey and breath, then he's got to be alive on each one of the days to proclaim the message that God has called him to speak. Some of us might be going, ah, I read the story, Matt. It looks like he only speaks for the first day. I would say good observation. Does anyone else place a big fat question mark on verse 3? Or is it just me? Is this the same Jonah from chapter 1 and 2? I'm being serious. Like, is this the same person? One commentator notes that in utter contrast to the opening scene, this time the prophet simply obeys the injunction to go to Nineveh. I'm like, eh, question mark. <laughs> I don't know if I believe that. 
Sometimes I wonder if we miss the subtle hint that Jonah's external compliance is accompanied by internal opposition. Because that's a fact. All of the parents in here have experienced that. You tell your kid, go put your face in the corner. You sit down in that chair. And they say, I'm standing up in my mind. (laughs) I'm telling you. Jonah's external compliance is accompanied by internal opposition. And the hint is subtle in the text, but it's there. Can anyone tell me why we might arrive at this conclusion? I'll give you a hint for the hint. Think about Jonah in chapter 1. It's his silence. The subtle hint is Jonah's silence. He was silent in his opposition to God, and now he's silent in his obedience. Daniel Timmer argues that the best explanation for his decision to comply is that he had no other choice. God used his sovereign authority over the created order to prevent Jonah from ending his own life. See chapter 1. Therefore, Jonah realizes that resistance is futile, so he trudges off to Nineveh. Now, before anybody accuses me of somehow armchair quarterbacking, some sort of psychoanalyzing the prophet, you know, allow me to remind you that this is not the first time that the author has decided that he's going to withhold information from his audience. It's true that If you read chapter 3, verse 1 through 3 in isolation, it creates the impression that Jonah is completely reformed. But to arrive at that conclusion, one would have to read these verses in isolation from the rest of the narrative. Jonah's compliance is 100% superficial. And all one has to do to confirm this is read Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. So let's do it. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased Jonah? What displeased Jonah exceedingly? It was God's extension of mercy to the people of Nineveh. See, the author withholds this bit of information to create suspense, and then it drops like a hammer in the following chapter. Jonah was angry, yo. <laughs> And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, this is the key right here. Please take, from my, t- please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." Jonah would rather be dead than live in a world where God had extended mercy to the pagan Gentile nation. You ever felt like that about anybody in this life? Well, there's no redemption for that person. There's no way I'll forgive that person. I hope that person burns in hell. 
Well, there's people that do, bro. There's people that do. There's people that do, man. Correct. Yeah, it's the, you're, you're absolutely right. It's the irony of his rebellion, and at every point, he's contradicted. At every single point in his life, he's contradicted. Oh, absolutely. This is why this, is why this book is so vital for the church to study right now, because it highlights the grace and the mercy of God with wicked, evil individuals, even like his own prophet. And this is why we don't put people on pedestals, yo, because in the ancient Near East, they would have been like, Jonah's a prophet of God. I'll tell you what. There's more prophets in the church today that I'm ashamed of for their flippant behavior and their whack prophecies that fail. And then they don't apologize for it. They don't take accountability for it. They do this, don't touch the Lord's anointed garbage. It's like, bro, you dropped the ball. And you're digging in right now is a reflection of your character and your nature. No different than Jonah's digging in. It's pathetic. And the prophets in the church who are guilty need to repent. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it, 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 that, that covers the spectrum of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. If you're serving in the hospitality or administration and your heart is hard, you need to repent. <laughs> no different than the prophets. Yeah. So here's the deal. We're not armchair quarterbacking Jonah. We're reading Jonah's behavior in context of chapter 1, in context of chapter 2, and in context of chapter 4. And we're saying, does these three verses in chapter 3 really speak of true reform? And when you look at the context of the entire narrative, you say there's just no way. So his behavior, his obedience is superficial. We choose to read chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, in light of the entire narrative, because when we do that, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that what we're actually arguing for this morning is the truth. So the whole point of today's sermon, everybody, the whole point of today's sermon is to remind us, all of us, how easy it is to fall into the trap of hating those who are different from us. Because that's what Jonah did. 
He looked at those who were different than him and he hated them. It's easy to be like Jonah. It's easy to hate those who persecute us. In modernity, it's even easier to hate those we fear instead of trying to understand them. I can tell you guys that I spent 27 months in two different countries fighting two different wars. I was not a patriot. I needed a job. I needed to get sober or I was going to end up dead or in jail. So the army was it. And so I went and I served. And immediately, I embraced this reality when I put the uniform on that anything that resembled Islamic connection was my enemy. I looked at people who even had an air of Muslim religious affiliation, and I thought, destroy them. It's very easy to fall into that, culturally speaking. I've done it myself. Exactly. We took a term that was, clo- that was, a, that was a colloquialism in their, in their culture for honor, and we spun it, and we took it, and we made it something that was disrespectful. So I can tell you from experience, it's very easy as a non-patriot to put on a uniform and go to basic training and graduate from airborne school and end up in a unit and find your feet on the ground in the Middle East and just be like, you know what? I hate all these people and I hate everybody that looks like them and I hate everybody that sounds like them and anybody who's closely connected to their culture, well, I hate them too. And then I came home and I got out of the army And it was very easy for me to take the hate that I had for them and to just blanket it across on anybody that was different than me or didn't like what I liked. Very, very easy. Notice the close of verse 3. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. The Word of God, man, like a scalpel just cuts me. John Walton argues that Nineveh is being described as a great city to God. And if you look at the Hebrew language, that's exactly what it says literally. He notes that the context suggests the phrase means, in God's estimation, Nineveh was great. Considering God's merciful response to the people of Nineveh, as well as what it is that we read in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, I believe that John Walton is correct in his interpretation. We got a slide with Jonah 4, verse 11 up here. This is the word of the Lord to the prophet. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand? God's heart did not reflect the heart of Jonah. And so our heart should not reflect the heart of the prophet. It's my prayer this morning that our heart would reflect the heart of God. One of the wonderful truths that we constantly come back to again and again and again throughout the book of Jonah is that God's grace and God's mercy is as broad as his sovereignty. So what's going to be, what's it going to be, Cross and Acre? 
How are we going to leave here today? Are we going to drive down the road? And when the car cuts us off, are we going to flip them the bird? <laughs> I'm talking about, that's how easy it is. That's how easy it is. You know, you all laugh, but I was talking to Stephanie. When you're driving, and the way that you respond to what happens to you on the road, we were having this conversation, we were laughing, it is a true expression of from the heart, the, the mouth will speak. So what's it going to be, church? What's it going to be? When we leave here, are we going to be a people who are transformed? When we're walking down the street and we're in Mountain View, and we see the Samoan dude or the African-American dude walking towards us, and he looks like he's gang-affiliated, are we going to see a child of God who needs the gospel, or are we going to cross the street and try to avoid him? What's it going to be, saints? What's it going to be? Are we going to leave here transformed today? Are we going to support the people who park a, 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 an overhead covering and a table that says repent or burn in hell at the LGBTQIA plus community events? Or are we going to go there and are we going to take the words of Jesus and Paul seriously? And are we going to set up a table with no affiliation on our t-shirts and nothing on our, on our tables? And are we going to feed those who are our enemies? And are we going to offer drink to those who are thirsty? And not just physically thirsty, but spiritually thirsty for the living water. And when they come to the table as they're traveling down their pride route, I'll tell you what will happen because I've been there. If you're not affiliated and you got something for them, hospitality will break down the walls of conversation. Why are you doing this? Where are you from? Oh, at one point I was far off. And the God of the universe died for me while I was at enmity with him. Do you know that God loves you? And it's the goodness of God that brought me to repentance. And all I'm doing is sharing this water bottle with you as you're walking down the parade route in the sun because God told me that when my enemy is thirsty, I'm supposed to give him something to drink. That's the translation. They're the mission field. You're getting it. It's clicking. The lost are not our enemies. They may see us as the enemy, but if you see them as the enemy, you got your Jonah lenses on. And you need to take your Jonah lenses off and you need to put your Christ lenses on and say, I should die for that person before they die because I know where I'm going in eternity and they need more time. Do our hearts break for them? Or are we just looking at them thinking like the Pharisee, I'm so glad I'm not like the tax collector. Remember, it was the one who beat his breast and hung his head who went home justified. What's it going to be, church? Are we going to leave here transformed? Or are we going to live our lives with our Jonah lenses on when we know we need to take them off and put our Christ lenses on? That's what I want to know. I don't care what their political affiliation is. 
I don't care what their lifestyle is. I don't care what they indoctrinate the next generation with, if it, con if it contradicts my view or not. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts there. Just like there was no hope for us when we were far off from God, we have the message. It's like looking at a cancer patient with the antidote and saying, I'm going to withhold this from you. It's not good. And so my question today, church, is what are we going to do? Are we going to leave here the same way we walked in? Or are we going to leave here different? Actually loving and praying for those who need the same grace and mercy that we get to live in every day. We're no better than anyone. So we need to stop viewing ourselves the way that Jonah viewed himself. And we need to start seeing everybody else through the eyes of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your Word that confronts us, Lord. You want to prune us, God. You have more in store for us. You're calling us deeper. And with every step we take, it gets more and more difficult. But it's possible because the same Spirit that raised you dwells in us. So God, I'm asking that this church would see the world the way you see the world. I'm asking that this church would see the world the way that you see it, Lord. That our hearts would break for those who are far off. That we would love the way that you love. That we would develop the discipline to speak the truth from a foundation of grace with love. And patience, not expecting an immediate change in all things. But depending on you, to sanctify on your timeline. Help us to disciple the nations, Lord. Help us to see the people of this world the same way you see them. In Jesus' name, amen.